This is episode 263 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. And now a word from our sponsor, Control and Compound. Infinite banking in under 60 seconds. We've all got to save our money somewhere, and we think that a high cash value life insurance policy is the perfect place to save it. Why? We're going to save our money inside this policy, and it's going to grow tax-free. Down the road, we're going to get hit with an emergency or an opportunity, maybe a chance to buy a business, real estate property, an income-producing asset. And instead of withdrawing from our savings account, we're going to leverage that asset. We're going to borrow the insurance company's money, and we're going to invest in that opportunity. Our money is still inside of that policy, compounding, uninterrupted, tax-free, and our money's outside in this investment opportunity. We're going to rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, all while providing a death benefit for our families. Down the road, we're going to retire. Now we retire with a high cash value life insurance policy with a lot of cash. We're going to start taking those policy loans again, but this time we're never going to pay them back. When I say never, I mean we're going to pay them back with the death benefit when we die, and our families are going to get left with the rest completely tax-free. For more information, visit www.controllingcompound.com forward slash Andrew Hines. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have Josh Findlay back on after about a year. Josh gave some updates as to what's happening in the mortgage market and getting approvals with specific respect to multifamilies. He also talked about some projects that he's getting into. Josh is an absolute wealth of knowledge and he hasn't been at it all that long. He's just uh, clearly a very hard worker and he really seems to know his stuff. So I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Just before we jump in, I want to remind you that if some of the concepts and terminology that I'm speaking are new to you. Those first 10 episodes of this podcast are really great for a foundation. Head on back and check those out and come on back up to modern episodes and I'm sure things will be a lot clearer for you. And uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, I ask that you kindly share it with somebody else that you think it might help. And without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the episode with Josh Findlay. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have Josh Findlay back on the show. It's been a little while, maybe about a year, I think. Yes, and, uh, well, yeah. yeah, Josh, thanks for doing this again. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, Josh, not everybody's going to be familiar with you. Not everybody's going to have heard the last uh, episode. I know you do have a pretty big brand presence with your mortgage business, but for those who aren't familiar with you, uh, maybe just give us the recap, uh, what you do in real estate investing, how you got started and what you do now. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, real estate, the real estate investing journey started about 2021 2020 uh, my business partner and i we got into helping people initially just with mortgages how everybody gets into kind of the industry you either hear somebody doing it and they're doing well or you know, you, you have an introduction and, and you have the opportunity to be able to shadow somebody so that happened and we kind of stumbled upon uh real estate investors we met this guy named matt mckeever i'm sure many of you stumbled upon real estate the same way and stars kind of aligned and we were asked to shoot some content and that content uh we decided to roll with it and um we started creating content when really there wasn't anybody creating content around uh, different types of capital um scaling how to do it that information was very safeguarded so we found out that if we give it away 
you know, people will gravitate to it. So that's how we started our business, started the Finlay Mortgage Team back in 2021. And uh, here we are today. So um, we specifically focus on helping real estate investors and our business has kind of grown into helping people get into and uh, stabilize multifamily assets. So we're really focusing on the commercial side of the business now. And um, that has led me into purchasing multiple buildings. I think last time we spoke, I was just finishing up my first multi, but a few on the go and, um, you know, teams growing, everything, everything's moving in the right direction. Yeah. Talk to me about this. Cause I, I think last time we were speaking, you know, things were changing. Uh, the market was already, you know, well in decline as far as, uh, property values go. Now, I think we're kind of hitting more of a stagnant period right now. What have you seen that do to your business? How, how are you seeing investors adapting, changing their approach? It was interesting to watch investors adapt in real time because realistically, if you started in 2021, you hadn't really seen a whole cycle. You saw COVID, which was an extreme, and then you saw after COVID, which is an extreme, and then, you know, uh, dealing with inflation, which is an extreme. So, you know, watching people and investors react in real time was interesting. Um, a lot of the pitfalls or a lot of the issues with COVID caused ramifications throughout the market. Uh, people who owned multiple single family homes or multiple you know, uh, properties that weren't cash flowing were starting to feel a crunch of variable rate debt. Um, you had people who had tenants who weren't paying and it was causing massive strain on their investments. And we saw the majority of, of these people get pushed out of being able to purchase real estate because asset values skyrocketed. You know, your income wasn't moving at the same pace as these asset values were increasing and you just were getting essentially priced out of retail investing. And we saw the writing on the wall long before it happened and help people transition into multifamily real estate. And we saw that by taking on multiple, uh, you know, by taking on tenants or taking on buildings that have multiple tenants, you reduce your overall risk. Um, you know, if one person stops paying in a 10 unit building, it's not as much your problem as it is, you know, the buildings yeah. issue. So diversifying risk and just scalability, you know, people decided that they wanted to get into type of financing that didn't necessarily require their ability to be able to qualify personally. You know, a lot of these people who are investing are, uh, business owners and these business owners don't necessarily show you know, $200,000 on paper nor right. do they want to. So, you know, everything kind of transitioned that way. And that's definitely a big reason why um, I've seen so many people doing some form of, of commercial uh, investing, whether it's commercial multifamily, commercial mixed use, or just straight commercial retail, whatever. Um, like a lot of people shift away. That seems like that's, it's the graduation, right? You, people start with a house and then they eventually graduate into this stuff because that's the way you grow. Uh, so yeah, my audience would probably be pretty familiar with that. Um, now more specifically in say like the last year as you know, reality, so to speak is set in for a lot of people, you know, it's rates are going to stay higher for a while. Um, prices are down and probably going to stay down compared to where they were. Uh, for some time at least. So how have you seen that change? You know, wh what's happened because of that? I think it just smart money repositioned their capital a while ago. You know, mm -hmm. they, they re they took a look at different options in the market. So anyone who had multifamily was using CMHC debt, whether they had to, whether they were forced into it, it's another mm -hmm. story, but you know, a lot of smart money has been sitting on the sidelines with you know dry powder looking for opportunity. And I think that right now they're 
are taking that opportunity and they're they're finding properties that are either distressed from from investors who can't finish projects or their cap yeah. rates are finally expanding to the point where they can uh, achieve like a two hundred thousand per door acquisition. So the numbers are starting to make sense, and the players who have the money in the sidelines mm-hmm. are are actually getting in and we're seeing actually like a transition from retail investors purchasing you know these smaller properties to you know, combining the resources together to to start to take on this smaller uh, yeah. multi-family demographic it's interesting to watch uh how these the, like the price patterns and how these people are actually starting to acquire assets because fundamentally investing in canada is changing yeah i mean it's it's been turned on its head so, so what used to work doesn't work anymore. It's it's almost the exact opposite. So, um, just thinking about that, like you're talking, people coming from they used to buy single families and now they're buying multis, pooling their assets. How are they getting through the Burr process to get into that CMHC program? Especially now that things have changed. So now with the MLI Select program, you got to have two years with an institution before you can you can go into it. That's if it was a construction project. Correct. And then, yeah. So, how are you seeing people structure their deals? Like, what's what's typical uh, for an investor these days? Are they coming in with the cash to do the renos? Are are they going with like a regular institution on a regular program as a bridge to get into the CMHC MLI Select program? Um, like, what's what's the approach? What would you advise a, a client to do today? It depends on your your uh, your experience and your risk appetite. To be honest. Um, there's really two ways to purchase these types of properties and and luckily we're in a buyer's market right now you know you have the opportunity to request a vtb at decent terms um there there are very few people who have the capital available um to be able to actually execute on these transactions considering you're looking at minimum 25 percent down if you're looking for a bridge product Mm-hmm. The average mid-sized multifamily is at least two million bucks in a decent market. You're looking at you know, a decent amount of capital. Yeah. Yeah. So so it, it, there's a there's a big barrier to enter the market. So what we're seeing is groups of three or four people who maybe had three or four you know duplexes, yeah. duplexes, restructuring their capital on the residential side and giving mm-hmm. them access to capital to be able to take on one of these mid-sized um, projects in decent markets. The key really is decent markets. So. You know, what you're doing is you're finding underperforming assets uh, with some sort of vacancy uh, in okay areas. You're talking like Hamilton, Kitchener, Cambridge, St. Catharines, like kind of the fringe of the GTA um, where you know the cost per unit still makes sense. And at some point you can actually still burn projects. So there's still phenomenal projects out there. It's just uh, your risk appetite needs to be there or your ability to be able to execute as an operator needs to be there. Can't tell you how many times I've seen people take on bridge financing and just, oh, well, we couldn't, you know, didn't work out. Like, it just, you have to really be aggressive and you really have to do it full time. If you're taking on a project like this, this isn't like a, you know, a duplex conversion that you can just kind of get your contractor to go and do. Like, the people who are uh, executing in this market are people who are doing this full time and they're allocating a significant amount of capital to making it happen. But, you know, as you said, CMHC did throw a wrench in things. Um, if you understand how to properly stack your capital and how to acquire, stabilize, and restructure the debt, that that's going to be the differentiating factor between either, you know, executing properly or not. Yeah, I mean, like, well, you mentioned VTB as an option. I feel like that's not a great option for most institutions anyway because they're not going to allow it. It has to, you have to be able to debt service. 
uh, and most of these properties probably won't. So if you're going to go with a VTB, then you are going to go with some sort of a private bridge or a B lender bridge uh, to get that done. And then you're going to come back around and have that issue with the two-year wait. Uh, unless you can go with, like, I don't know if like an equitable trust or something will qualify as uh, as an institution for CMHC standpoint. Um, so there, there are some ways around it. Like if you, mm-hmm. if you pay out the VTB in cash, so if you get like a, let's say an EQ first or you get some sort of first on a bridge debt and then you had a, a like a VTB, a small VTB in second, if you pay that VTB out throughout the term of the loan, uh, you'd be, you wouldn't necessarily trigger the, the two-year requirement. Oh, okay. So, oh, so you're saying they would even care even if you had an institutional first and a VTB behind it. Because that's how you can upset a bank, right? If you're with RBC and you throw a VTB yeah. in behind them, when they do their annual review, they're they're going to say you're in breach of contract. Yeah, it, it becomes yeah. dicey for sure. You want to make sure that the conventional NHA approved lender that you're dealing with understands that you're putting the VTB behind it. And usually, if it's mm-hmm. you know flexible bridge capital to be able to, and your and your exit is defined, you know, yeah. sometimes you can make it work. Yeah, hopefully people are following along with this. So this is heavy into the commercial multifamily talk, you know, lending structures, how how to get a deal done today versus, you know, a couple of years ago when everything was going up, up in value. I think people were a lot more confident to take that private money, pay the big interest rate because they knew that the price of the, the real estate was going up. So they kind of felt like they were hedged in that regard. Now it's like every day matters that much more. But for me, I always felt like that way. If, I, if I'm borrowing private money, I'm like, a day of, of nothing happening on site used to give me an anxiety attack. I'm like, where is everybody? <laughs> Get on the phone. Yeah. 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 You can't, can't have that. But I like how you said that it is sort of like a full-time job. Like a lot of people were, were cavalier about it. Oh, we'll get into these projects because everybody else is doing them. We'll borrow the private money because everybody else is doing it. But like, you got to take that seriously. That's a serious commitment because those, those loans come due and they're looking to collect, you know, like you're, you're on the hook for that. So I think that's why we've seen such like a push into understanding CMHC financing. You know, there was a massive push last June, July to meet, to beat out the, uh, the benchmarks increasing and the insurance premiums increasing. And it it brought a lot of, a lot of investors, uh, it it brought them kind of into the fold of what CMHC is, you know, back in the day, you know, your banker would, maybe help a guy who had a five or $10 million deal do this because rates worked on the conventional side. You had three and a half percent commercial debt. So people kind of understanding how these products work is is a new thing. Like CMHC, they never dealt with 6,000 applications coming in for your million dollar sixplex. Like that wasn't Mm. wasn't something that was needed. So I think CMHC is also adapting to a new level of investor in Canada starting to really understand the federal options that are out there as well. Yeah. Um, they've had to change everything, right? Cause like you said, like uh, everybody talks about this in my circles, anyone who's doing multifamily, you know, I'm, I'm scrolling on Instagram, seeing people post that they just finished this MLI select refi on their multifamily. Uh, boy, have things changed, you know, from a few years ago. Like even since I started this podcast, when most people who came on were talking about just doing residential properties, you know, sneaking it through with the bank on the residential side to, uh, you know, now it's we're, we're moving into this space and that's just more and more common. That's all that's all people are really talking about. So I can imagine, yeah, CMHC is probably getting lit up with applications, which is why they did what they did to just kind of cool things off. 
a, a bit, but they're still propping up the value of real estate right now, right? Like the multifamily real estate is because people can get 95% in a 50 year AM if they do it right. Um, I think sellers are well aware of that and are, are using that to, to their advantage. Without a doubt, I think you're, you know, you're seeing still multifamilies sell at four and a half cap um, and, and investors are buying it. It's even with vacancy, they're, they're pricing in that vacant unit being that market rent because they know an investor will go in and, and be able to leverage the property. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're seeing we're seeing lots of demand still. Like, there is no slowdown of multifamily real estate being acquired. You know, the guys who have the hundreds of units are making 30 day cash offers on you know, good deals in decent areas because they know that the scalability of it is going to continue to be there as the federal government throws billions of dollars at the CMB to be able to fix the housing crisis. So I, I think there's a lot, of, yeah. a lot of smart money right now is understanding where I guess Canada is going as a whole and the inventory situation and multifamily yeah. real estate will continue to increase in value just due to overall demand and lack of supply right yeah i think the biggest single issue is and i don't know where values go overall like if we're thinking housing units in general do we think they're going to go up in the next five years it's tough to say because there's all these variables right and then the immigration variable that just happened they are trying to cut back on student visas which will have a trickle-down effect into a lot of other things but doesn't change the fact that you're still we're still way short on housing so, you know, what will that do in the long run? It's really, it's really tough to say, but I think, yeah, there's a lot of reason to, uh, to think it makes sense to get into some multifamily aside from having to deal with Ontario's landlord law uh, or landlord laws. So tell me a little bit about like your outlook on Ontario, what you like, what you don't like, how you see it working. And if you have a case study, even if we can talk about something you're doing personally, uh, you know, let me know which way you want to take that. Yeah, I mean, Ontario is like the golden goose of Canadian real estate, you know, like everybody who is invested in Ontario in the last two decades has made it like a bandit. And I don't necessarily think that's continuous and going to happen forever. We go through cycles. Um, Ontario real estate as a whole, you know, I personally invest in multifamily real estate. I think that the majority of the immigration comes into Ontario and uh, the demand for real estate in the GTA is massive, and if you follow the 401, people will continue to drive to qualify for a decent living. So if you follow the fundamentals behind, you know, asset value as a whole, and you look at the macro picture, I, I'm, I'm bullish on Ontario real estate. I think that we're going to continue to bring people into the country, and people are going to continue to want to live outside of the GTA, um, creating you know, affordable, well, affordable, but like, you know, great housing in good areas is always going to be a demand. Uh, you might not cash flow. That might be an issue. But I, I, if you're playing on the appreciation game, that, uh, that would be, that's my bet. Um, there's a lot of smart money going into Calgary or, you know, has been going into Calgary for the last two years. Um, if you know how to play the CMHC game, you know, the affordable unit it, standard is across the country and an affordable unit in Calgary is actually higher than what the market rent is in Calgary. So there's really? a, oh, yeah. Okay. So, and you're talking about the MLI select standard, like the requirement because it's a national <laughs> standard. And if you pick Calgary, it's just easier to qualify anywhere in Alberta almost. So yeah, yeah. So you can go in and uh, there are very more lax, I'd say tenant laws than, than Ontario. And market mm-hmm. rent is um, 
is higher than, or yeah, market rent is lower than what actual affordable units are classified as. So it's that's uh, a good little loophole to know. Um, like what would you, could we, could we run the numbers on what that would look like? Like an idea, like what's your average rent going to be in like, do do you, have you done a deal recently in Alberta that we could, we could kind of loosely touch on numbers of? Yeah, so I'm actually underwriting one right now. A client just picked it up. It was a condo building. Um, There's 15 units, and these units, uh, he actually individually purchased each one of them. Um, let's say okay. they're like 98000 bucks a unit. Uh, on 15 of them, it was like four, $1.4 million. Um, okay. Market rent, the majority of them, let's say they were all two beds, but I think it was like 12 two beds and three one beds at fifteen hundred dollars which would be market rent after renovation okay so so that'll do twenty two thousand five hundred a month then yeah and at a five and a half cap i believe it was pushing three million dollars arv once complete just use a standard like 25 percent expense Uh, operating expense ratio yeah hang on a second here i will do that right now so 25 percent And because CMHC requires, you know, a certain percentage of your building to be classified as an affordable unit, yeah. $1,500 is less than the 30% of the median renter income in the area, which I believe is 1650 So every single one of your units would be classified as an affordable unit. <laughs> so you can get the 50-year AM maybe? Or... Well, I mean, so these buildings are a little bit older. I'd probably underwrite it at a 45-year AM just to be conservative. CMHC yeah. doesn't. This just doesn't allow for any amortization under five longer years. than useful life or yeah. yeah. Uh, so, but they're still, their rates are still under five, right? They're like four and a half. Yeah. The CMBs popped up a little bit depending on the size alone. I mean, if you're conservative, I'd say underwriting at 5%, you're probably around 4.75, but underwriting at five. Okay. So 5%, we'll just run this number right now. Um, okay. So first off at a 3 million, I'm getting a 6.6 cap based on 25% um, operating expense ratio. Um, also I did have a, uh, vacancy in there, <clears throat> 2%. I could cut that down, but yeah, so we're getting in that ballpark of a seven cap at 3 million. So realistically, you're going to be under, right. You're going to probably get a valuation at five and a half or a six cap on that too. Like when it's all, oh really? Cap. Okay. So then it could be like, it's probably higher than three. Yeah. Like three and a half million would be 5.7 yeah. cap. So if you're getting a three and a half million, so if this, this guy bought it for one, four, any idea what he's going to have in to, uh, to 500, 500 in runoffs? Like- yeah. So he's in for 1.9, you know, basically going to be getting out of the building. Uh, if he, if he gets 95% or would, would that be reasonable to assume or no? No, he's not going to get 95. He's pro- he, we projected at an ETO of roughly, I want to say two, 2.8. 2.8. Okay. So. So that's like 80% loan to value ish. Yeah. Okay. So at 2.8 million, uh, he'd be pulling 900,000 out of the deal. Yeah. And, and like that's, and this is the beautiful thing of like Alberta is like the, the tenant laws, you know, now he bought all these units, but hypothetically, if you went in and just purchased a 15 unit building, um, the laws around being able to increase the rent to market you know, are much more lax than we would have in Ontario, which is, this is why we see the majority of investors allocating a capital to places that don't have as restrictive laws. 
Uh, like if you just look at the numbers, you made a million and a half dollars and you were able to pull out $800,000 in cash in probably less than 12 months. That's absurd. Yeah. Like what would the angle be? So he's going to go in and do like cosmetic renos to these units, like new kitchens, or is it just paint and flooring? Uh, 25000 to $30,000 a unit. So you're like... So it's a pretty significant yeah. reno. Yeah. You're, you're renoing the whole thing. You're putting a new kitchen, bathroom, floors, paint, you know, making them nice units. Heat pumps in every unit or no? Uh, I, no, he's not going to do the energy efficiency requirements. Doesn't even need to because he, he meets the other requirements. That's correct. <laughs> oh, man. It's just so funny. You see people just go out and just do it. You know, uh, we've seen multiple multi-million dollar ETOs this year with our firm. You know, watching people acquire these assets and, and do it and help them do it and watch you know, a few million dollars land in a bank account. And it's tax-free money. You know, you're borrowing the capital. You finish the project. You're exiting. It allows you to be able to be at such an advantage mm -hmm. moving forward to purchase additional real estate. Um, you know, the, the key is really understanding the capital required to do it. How do you mm -hmm. structure your debt properly to be able to execute and, and understanding the fundamentals behind yeah. how to do it properly? Yeah, well, let's talk about that. So going into this deal... I mean, well, what, first off, what's, what's this gentleman's time horizon going to be like? So say he just, uh, say he just closed them all, or I don't know how long ago it was, um, or has he closed them yet? Hasn't closed them yet. No, we're, we're just, so he uh, went and figured out 14 different or 15 different agreements with different owners. That's correct. Yeah. All 15 got, I mean, it, it, all 15 got signed. So that's insane. Okay. Yeah. But moving past how insane that is. Okay. So the next, so he's going to close it. How long from when he closes it to when he'll be able to get into that MLI select program? So there is no time frame in regards to being able to refinance. You can refinance right away if you wanted, but uh, most, most likely we're looking at about a nine month renovation because he's going to have vacancy on the building, go in, do nine months. And then CMHC has their application timeline down about 60 days eight to nine weeks at the moment okay. so it's drastically you know reduced from what we previously have seen so he's probably going to exit at month 12. okay and is he going in with uh private money or an institution of undertake back like what what's the approach here great question so we're going to use nha approved lender there's a few options available we're going to use a bank uh, because we're anticipating having full vacancy on the building on possession, there's going to be most likely like a, a nine to 12 month IR. So you're going to have to pay the interest reserve up front for the 12 months because it's going to be max, like 100% vacancy in the building. But that's going to give you the ability to be able to just go in, uh, dump your yeah, tax on the building and, and restructure the debt as when it's done. So it's a little bit of an upfront cost, but you're looking at Prime Plus. 1.75 on your debt, which is sub 9% debt, uh, which is, you know, phenomenal in today's market for the first year. So, and I would kind of build that into the costs. Like we said, 500 in, I might, I might throw that in at 600 just to cover the year's interest as, as they get it all set up uh, and look at that as part of the investment, but that's just wild. So how many deals are you seeing like that come across your desk? Like how many people are doing deals like this? So purchasing all the units, it, it, not very many, but like people acquiring multifamily buildings out west and doing this. Like in perfect burrs that cash flow when they're done? All the time. All the time. Yeah. Like this one, I'm showing a cash flow at 3,700. So get a building for free, put 900 grand in your pocket and then get $3,700 a month yeah. in cash flow. It's the, um, it's the capital required to do the project. You're looking that's at- That's it, right? So to come in- You got to play the game, right? So to do that that project, 
uh, it's 1.4 to close it. He's going to get institutional, so he just has to come in with what the 25% plus closing costs, and then then well, he I needs have. to be able to renovate. Then he needs the well, 500 to renovate. That's right. But then he can do the deal, and then the 900 he pulls out that allows him to do a whole bunch more on the next project. That's correct, and this is why we've seen a massive amount of people transition and move to places where you don't have as regulated of as a market. And you know, what's interesting, people people in Ontario love to demonize you know investors going out there, but you know. Alberta is one of the only markets that don't, that don't have as strict regulation, and they're also the lowest market rent place in the country. Yeah. Self-regulated markets. Oh, I love the self-regulated market. I mean, just people, it's, it's one of the only places you'll go and you'll see rents actually come down. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's not regulated in that sense. Uh, so if people just pay market rent. Like a landlord would be dumb to just jack the rent on somebody because they'll just leave. Mm -hmm. um, so landlords are reasonable probably with their tenants. The tenants don't think they can play games. I bet you it's just much more pleasant to be a landlord in Alberta. Without I've never that. been, but uh, I think it would be way better. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, I, I think, I think when you talk to an investor who invests out there and you talk to an investor who is playing ball in Ontario, you've got two very different conversations. You know, it's, uh, it's becoming much more difficult to be able to do the same thing in Ontario. And I think what we're seeing right now is people getting out of the Burr model for multis, just because the capital required and the risk tolerance of it just doesn't make sense anymore. The gap between legacy tenants and, and market rent right now is so large. It's so big, yeah. Making it almost impossible. So we're seeing people get into the development space. You know, a lot of people who play the game for the last two or three years are looking at, you know, how do I build? purpose-built multifamily real estate. If I got to choose between tenants and I got to choose between the city, I'm going to choose the city. It's going to take me six months longer, but I'm going to have brand new inventory. I'm going to get market rent right away. The landlord-tenant laws aren't the same. I can keep it at market rent while I own the property. CapEx mm -hmm. is reduced throughout the term of, the, of owning it. Most people are transitioning into the smaller development and most municipalities are also increasing density requirements. So you, know, you can build a tenplex right now without having to go to site plan approval. And where does that cover? Is that just City of Toronto or is that across Ontario now? That's across Ontario. I think municipalities each have their own individual way of dealing with it, but yeah, it was but it's in force now. They all have to play ball with it now. Yep. Was that part of Bill 23? Yeah. I feel like it was. Yeah. Okay. It's been a while since I looked at that. Okay. So that's actually uh, super handy to know. So you're seeing more people doing that. Of course, the zoning needs to be appropriate. Correct. So if the zoning will support that, no site plan is needed. Correct. So everything less than 10 units right now, you can skip site plan. As long as the zoning allows, that's correct. Yeah, we have a handful of clients who are looking in different municipalities. There's uh, there's mixed commercial zoning allowances on um, in some pro in some cities that you know you can essentially put anything on it. And uh, there are people who are scooping up these old century homes, chopping the back off of them, and then building eight or nine units off the back. And it's a quick process. Walk me through that again. So if, if it's a mixed zone that allows residential or or commercial. Yep. So so there's these, you know, those uh, kind of old dentist office and like lawyer yeah. offices, you yeah. know, old Victorian homes. So they're in certain municipalities, they have specific zoning on them and you can put anything yeah. on them. So right, right. If you know where to look, you can buy these places and then what most people are doing is just chopping off the back and building a massive addition off the back and throwing the 10 units on and 
you know, you can get away with it pretty quickly. The lenders like it because it's not you know, too small of a loan. It's also not too large of a loan. The risk appetite's there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, great. Phenomenal. So how many units would that be? So that'd be like a, almost like a commercial storefront or an office or some sort. And then you're saying like you would just match the facade and then build straight back. So just yep. a nice clean cut across the back of the house and just carry on the building, a big addition. And usually those those properties have like large lots too because they're older lots. Mm-hmm. They facilitate enough parking and stuff too. It's, uh, it's interesting to watch how these new changes have come to take effect over the last 12 months. Yeah. So to recap on that, you don't see people doing, trying to do the burrs in Ontario. Like we just went through perfect burst scenarios in Alberta. Those work. You're not really seeing it happening in Ontario. No, I'm, I'm doing them. Like, I mean, there are still people doing them. Yeah, it's, but uh, it's, it requires probably a better buy price. It does. It does. And the type of capital you want to take on, which is institutional capital, will only play in decent markets. So you're in a situation where you have to buy in an okay market. So the cost per unit is going to be more meaning the barrier to enter the and acquire these assets is going to be more so. What do you mean, okay market? So they're not going to do rural Ontario? They're not going to do Simcoe? Yeah, that's right. Like the the appetite for these NHA-approved lenders isn't necessarily... Oh, yeah. So yeah, yeah they don't you're want it, right? Because when you right. talk NHA, you're talking like your equitable trust. Uh, is home trust NHA as well? Yeah, yeah there's, yeah. there's a big list of them, but like there isn't yeah. as many as you think that want to give bridge loans on underperforming assets. So if you're looking yeah. to execute on this, you, know, you need to understand that there are only a handful of large institutions yeah. that want to lend on underperforming assets in certain markets. And you're... 12 plex in simcoe or exeter like it's it's going to be more challenging or it's going to be more expensive so your pricing is going to be more your cost is going to be more you know all things to consider that's okay though if the price is is a bit more on the interest if you if you know your your system if you know what you're going to do but then again you're going into older stuff there's you know tenants that aren't gonna they're not going to want to leave yep because they're they're paying so far under market rent that why would they, you know, why would they? And I'm sure that you're seeing that with your clients a lot. Which is the shift towards, you know, mm-hmm. mid-sized development. It, it's almost yeah. the same amount. And the you know, CMHC has products for development as well. You're looking at 95% loan to cost, you know, um, and transitioning directly yeah. into uh, CMHC long-term debt when it's done. Well, talk to me about that. So how how do you structure that? How long is the application? So like if somebody wanted to get into that kind of a process, are they going to go find something and tie it up conditionally, come to you and say, here's what I want to do? And, you know, what's what's that look like from a process standpoint? How long is the application? When could they close? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're buying just a piece of land and you don't have a site plan, odds are you're going to just close on it privately like you normally would with a piece of land. Okay. You bury all your soft costs into it. You close in the deal. You get to site plan approval. Once you're at site plan, then you'd come to us and we would uh, we'd structure your loan. So your 95% loan, the cost includes your acquisition costs, hard costs, soft costs, carrying costs. Um, now, 95% sounds great and everybody tries to hold you to it, but it's important to understand that you have to qualify for the 95% of the hard cost, essentially meaning we reverse engineer your loan. So how your building or your pro forma operates in the back end of the, of the loan, meaning the completion of the loan will dictate the cap on how much capital CMHC is going to give you when constructing mm-hmm. the project. Um, construction and 
purchasing uh, with CMHC is like 60 days. You can do it pretty quickly as long as you have your site plan approval in place, permits, you know, construction drawings, stuff like that. Yeah. Will they give anything against the value of the land or only mm-hmm. on... So they'll give on the hard cost for the land too? Yep. But they're not going to cover any of your engineering and your site plan soft costs. Yeah. So so they'll cover all they'll cover all of it. But but realistically, you know, when mm-hmm. you're if you're buying a piece of land, like you can't get CMHC financing if it's just land and you don't have. Yeah, you got to close it. Now, would they have an issue if you if you closed it with a private mortgage and then come to them to replace it for the construction? Nope. So there's no no NHA requirements for construction. Okay, so as long as you go through through it with them, no problem. Have you done one of those yet? I mean, I I, I don't know how common that is. Yeah, yep. Yeah, we've done a few. Um, we're working on a bunch right now as well. Uh, it is becoming more common as things get tighter. Um, yeah. you know, cost of capital is definitely uh, been an issue, been an issue with most developers. So trying to make the numbers work, trying to squeeze everything out of it as possible. Most of the time, these developers aren't getting the ninety five percent just because the numbers aren't working on the back end. And, but, and that's based on projected rents, a projected end value. So not just loan to cost, but they also look at the end value. That's correct. Yeah. Because presumably the value is going to be more than your cost, right? You're, I mean, if you're, you'd hope so. You're, you're trying for that. (laughs) So, so 95% loan to cost might only end up being 75% loan to value. It it depends on the circumstance. Sometimes you see Mm -hmm. people who've owned very expensive pieces of land for a long time and who went to site plan for three or four years with private debt. You know, you're carrying costs and acquisition costs and holding it and then having to construct it as well when elevated construction costs are, are in play. Sometimes, you know, it, it's upside down, but uh, the cost of, if you hold it for a long time and site plan approval took a long time to do and cost you a lot of money, uh, it could put you in a position where you, you could qualify for it. Gotcha. Okay, so what are the benefits to doing this uh, CMHC development um, loan? And, you know, what, what would be the, the negatives? I mean, obviously we want to touch on their process for releasing draws. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the advantages would be just cost capital, the same as, as regular, you know, capital or regular reasons why somebody would go to CMHC. Overall cost of capital and uh, being able to acquire or you know, recoup the majority of your costs back um, on a project. If you're fund, if you're underwriting a deal right now with a conventional lender at like 65 or 70 percent loan to cost you know, your equity injection stuck in this property is massive and if you start running the numbers backwards you know it, it, it's even worse on the back end if you're trying to go loan the value when the project is complete so um, a lot of it is just like making the numbers work with developers and trying to see how much equity they got stuck in the deal and in this environment people are just trying to get as much out as possible right um and as far as like the the process goes are you still working with one of the big a banks they're the ones doing the the draw releases and all that stuff. They're the ones servicing the loan, and it's just insured by CMHC in their program. That's correct. Yeah, just mm-hmm. a, there's a handful of different lenders out there that facilitate construction loans. CMHC is just the insurer that gives the mm-hmm. certificate of insurance on the back end, and then you would take it to a handful of different lenders depending on location, size, and strength of borrower, and what lender has an appetite for what. Right. And then, so you you have no direct uh, interaction with CMHC in any of this process. It's all done through the lender? Uh, it depends. So as a CMHC direct correspondence, we do. But uh, if you were just to like you know, submit to a lender, the lender would usually take care of it. Gotcha. Oh, so you guys do deal direct? Yep. Interesting. And so do you pick the lender after you get CMHC's approval? 
That's correct. Yeah. So being a direct correspondent allows us to get the certificate of insurance and then we can go shop it to, you know, any different lender uh, once we have the certificate. So, you know, it allows you to be competitive on pricing. It allows you to be competitive on rates and, and all that stuff. Interesting. Oh, that's handy. How how did you get that set up? Is that something any broker could do, or you guys had to meet some performance metrics? Yeah, I had to sell my soul, sell my firstborn child. I had to give it away to get gotcha. it. Gotcha. Fair yeah. enough. Um, okay. Anything else you could tell me about? Kind of what's new, what's happening, what's useful to investors right now? Yeah. Um, you know, multifamily real estate. I think like it, it's been echoed for the last few years, and it, it continues to echo. Uh, don't buy something just because you have to, but opportunity is knocking and the ones who are looking at opportunities right now are the ones that have the most dry powder on the side and who are probably tried and tested. You know, there are investors right now who unfortunately made some bad calls over the last 12 to 18 months and there are projects that are in desperate yeah. need of some capital and if you are opportunistic and you have the ability to be able to do it and make the right moves, I think there is a generational opportunity here to uh, to acquire something if you are looking. If not, there is a, a lot of uncertainty in the market. We don't know where things are going, whether or not you believe the tabloids or wherever things are going. Um, there's still a lot of uncertainty and uh, there are people calling for rate hikes. There are lots of people who are calling that rates are gonna drop. Nobody has a crystal ball. So we're just mm-hmm. uh, gonna wait and see. Trust your instinct. If you do really wanna understand how this works, follow different economists and and understand what they're seeing and how they're going about assessing the economy. Yeah, and at the end of the day, I think you need to build yourself in a buffer. like you because it's exactly as you just said, no one has a crystal ball. We don't know. I have people ask me, you know, values going up or down. And all I can say is that I see stuff, I see forces on both sides. So where that shakes out, I mean, there's so many variables in there that it's impossible for anybody to know. If we could know for sure, we'd, you know, we'd all be billionaires. I wouldn't be here. (laughs) I would be Um, on a So, so tell me about what you're working on personally right now. Sure. Yeah. I got a, 12plex I just acquired in Kitchener. Um, it was off market. Uh, Kyle Church, if anybody's dealt with Kyle, phenomenal realtor, he helped me acquire this. Um, it was yeah, off market 12plex. Uh, ended up getting it for 200000 a door, which was $2.4 million. Mm-hmm. Um, there was four vacancies on possession. One of them then again left uh, before we took possession, so five vacancies total. Uh, in an area in Kitchener where there is not surrounded by other multifamilies, it's surrounded by like single-family homes, which I like. It's good for the overall building and like the demographic around it. Um, and the people who are selling it, a lot like most people who who deal in real estate, they were just an old uh, Greek family, mm-hmm. and they were getting rid of it and they wanted to sell it and didn't want the hassle of it anymore. It needed a lot of love. It hadn't been uh, taken care of in a while. So we ended up scooping it up and we currently, actually they, they allowed us to go in the property before we closed and we did four of the units and renovated them before we closed so we could get our tenants in there as soon as we closed. Um, they offered us a VTB on the property. So we took it for a few years while we wait for rates to come down. So you're not going into the MLI select right away on that one? Uh, we are going to pay out the VTB in cash. Okay. So you might go into apply for MLI select in the that's next correct. couple of years. Yeah. yeah that's correct. Okay. But the, the plan is to go through MLI select to, uh, do some of the energy mm-hmm. efficiency upgrades required and then, yeah. and then move it in. And what do you, um, what do you figure your average rent is right now? 
Game Factory again, you have some legacy tenants, you have some some uh, new market tenants. Sure, yeah. So they're all two bed units. Um, we are so for all the new units, they're renting it around. We thought they were going to rent around for twenty one hundred, but we just can't seem to get the rent on it. So like roughly around two thousand to two thousand fifty per unit. There's okay. definitely been a softening in the overall rental market in the kind of the three story walk ups in Kitchener recently. Okay. So 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 about two thousand on those five, and then the legacy tenants remaining. Um, what's the average there? I'd say like eight hundred and fifty to nine hundred. Now, now the legacy tenants, not all of them were at eight hundred, eight or nine hundred dollars. Like some of them were at market yeah. already. So I'd say probably. So if like, you were to do an average, it'd be like what twelve hundred? Uh, total probably like sixteen for each. Oh, oh between everything, the two thousand yeah. dollar ones, and so sixteen across the whole building on average. Yep. yep. Gotcha. Okay, so sixteen. No, we got we got really lucky. So the the yeah. the negotiation with the seller, we were able to negotiate uh, like a vendor take back at four percent interest only for a few years. So we were able to put ourselves in a cash flow situation or a darn clear darn close to cash flow situation uh, on the onset of acquiring the property. Gotcha. So this one, yeah, you'd be like nineteen thousand two hundred in rent. Um, if we just leave that 25% operating expense in there, is that still, you think, relevant or maybe a little higher than that, 30? Yeah, I think we're a little bit higher than that, but well, yeah. that's fine. Yeah, we'll put 30 in there. So then the question is, what's the bank going to value it at? Because if we still have that <laughs> $3.5 million in there from our last scenario, um, yeah. that's a four and a half cap. So I know the numbers in front of me, but I was we were playing with the numbers yesterday or two days ago, and we were roughly around $3 million at a five and a quarter cap. Okay, yeah, I'm in similar ballpark here. Yep. I, I, at 5.3 cap, it's a $3 million. Yep. Um, but that's very rough numbers. Uh, yeah. So if you're, if you're institutional on this, uh, did you get an institution for your first? I did not know it was a vendor take back at 4%. Oh, the whole thing. The whole thing, yeah. Nice. How, how much? 75%, 80%? 75%. 75%. Interest only? Interest only. 4%? 4%. Oh, wow. Well, that'll do it. Let's see. <laughs> it, it definitely helped uh, with the stabilization of the asset. I guess the only thing is I, I'm calculating this not on what you paid. Uh, so let's go back. Let's just type in what you paid at two, four million. That is cash flowing like seven grand a month. Does that make sense? Uh, it's got to be pretty close. Yeah, no, we're, yeah. We're, this is the only building I've ever purchased that was essentially allowed us to cash flow almost in day well, one. Yeah, the second you go interest only at 4%, <laughs> that changes things. Yeah, yes. and, and the two-year term allowed us to at least play the market again. Like no one knows where it's going to be, but I yeah. think it will be in a much lower interest rate environment in 2025. Well, now you can take that money and, you know, as units turn over, use that money to renovate them. Like, I love that kind of a buffer. That's the kind of buffer that makes real estate investing fun. Yeah, it's a diamond in the rough, though. Finding that deal, like, you know, right place, right time, yeah. right place. Well, what would you have paid if that was just a normal on-market deal, you think? Uh, probably, I mean, 200 a unit, 215, probably 215 a unit, probably a little bit more. Okay. So um, not not terrible. Done now. Um, so if you're if you're gonna do that, then equals two fifteen times twelve. So you would have been two point five eight. So you got it for about one hundred and eighty under. 
Yeah, I think the big thing here is the VTB. That's the big the big game changer for you, and also that they they were so cooperative about the tenants moving out. You you know your average rent on the building is much better than some other buildings that you're gonna find like that with a you know one of those type of owners who've owned it for a really long time. You know they didn't feel the pressure to jack rents every time because they were making good money for for what they had on the the building. Right, so many are in that scenario. And realistically, what we do is like we love. Re- revitalizing buildings like if we're going to take over a building you know, we put in the money to be able to make the units nice for a nice place to people yeah you know, we, we actually we, we switched out the roof we repaved the asphalt you know we we're redoing the common areas like when we go in and, and buy these buildings yeah we go in with the intention of really making like a nice place for people to live um and you know taking over buildings from people who don't didn't necessarily care about it allows mm. us to uh to capitalize on creating great assets. For yeah. And what do you figure you'll put into this one? How much money in total? I mean, realistically, let's say we get through seven, seven units at 30 grand a piece. We got a roof, we got asphalt, we got common areas. You are probably at least 400, at least. So you're going to put 400. So you're going to be in for 2.8, figuring values at, you said three or you know, who knows, potentially in time, it could be worth even more. So you're going to have some money left in the deal, but it'll be a cash flowing uh, deal from the looks of it. And like, that's, and that's where most investors just need to be okay with the new reality. It's like, you have to have mm-hmm. money in deals. You know, most yeah. some of the most successful investors that I know have extremely high paying jobs where they found a way to make active income through a business. Yeah. And yeah. And then they don't need to get it all out of their real estate. Yeah, that's correct. It allows you to be yeah. more flexible. It allows you to do the right thing, to be able to create great assets and to hold them yeah. long term instead of skipping corners. Um, For sure. Yeah, like things have changed. That's, what, that's why I said it's almost almost like everything that used to work doesn't work because you know people could just you could you could be um, you know severely challenged and and not at all good at real estate and not analytical and just buy a property and and just have it go up in value and you win anyway. <laughs> that that type of investor isn't in the game anymore. So, but I think that yeah. like the the average Canadian needing to understand this, it's never been more important than right now. Yeah, be sophisticated. That's what I've been saying. You got to become sophisticated. Yeah, you have to because these are becoming legacy items, and mm-hmm. and we are very quickly seeing the majority of the population lose the ability to own real estate. And when the majority of the population loses the ability to own the most important asset that you can own, um, mm-hmm. we start to have a serious problem. Yeah, I mean, it, I've thought about this a lot, and I feel like it just leads to more socialist policies because. Politics reflects the belief of the people, right? It, it reflects the morality and belief of the people. And if people just like in general, um, they don't own anything, then they're going to be more like, oh, well, government, since I don't own anything, I want the, the politician that will give me the most free stuff. So it actually, I, I really think it would be bad for Canada because it will create a much more socialist mentality like government, you, you, the government that made all these problems, please now give me free things to fix my problems. <laughs> uh, obviously not logical, but that's just, you know, it's human, human nature. And I think that we just got to kind of uh, see that. So what we do with that, I don't know. This is why I'm not super hot on Ontario for the long run, um, at least in like basic residential stuff. Like I think there's a lot of opportunities. Of course, there's still an opportunity to buy in Ontario. You just got to kind of be prepared for those outcomes and know what your angle is and how you're going to handle that and how you're going to, because there's lots of people as, as you're talking about this, like lots of people who are going to make a lot of money in Ontario, 
uh, because they're going to know how to play that game. And the more people who don't want to deal with it, the other ones are going to become really specialists at dealing with it and make a lot of money because of it. And, and that's what we're seeing, just the concentration of, of knowledge mm. right yeah. now is, is pooling to a handful of people. And those people are taking massive action towards it in this market. Yeah. And it's just going to create a, a divide. Yeah. Yeah, it must be fun dealing with a lot of the clients you deal with. You, you get to see a lot of the inner workings of these deals uh, because they're just running them by it. And these are probably a lot of people who don't want to come on the podcast and talk about it. <laughs> they don't want anyone to know. The majority of people who are doing uh, who are doing large stuff, they are uh, the ones who have three Facebook followers and and are yeah. just always always creeping. Yeah, they don't they don't want to talk about it. They don't want everyone knowing. Yeah, it makes sense. Cool, Josh. Where can people find you and reach you? Sure. Yeah, uh, you can follow me on JFins. Um, we, we are also on Instagram at FMT Mortgages. Uh, we actually have some exciting news. Um, I will not share it here, but if you keep up on our socials, at the end of next month we have a big announcement coming up. So uh, stay tuned and check in with us there. Um, or my contact information, email, and phone number are going to be down below as well. Okay, we'll make sure we uh, we have that and include that there. Awesome. Well, thanks for doing this. Uh, anything else you want to share just before we uh, we sign off here? No, I, I mean, keep doing the same thing, guys. Keep learning. As, as Andrew said, start. This is a dynamic. You know, everybody, everything changes. And as markets change, how you acquire assets and how you go about uh, purchasing real estate changes. So always keep mm -hmm. up to date, keep informed, keep listening to podcasts, watching YouTube videos, mm -hmm. trying to better yourself. Um, it's the only way to be able to move forward in you know, these types of markets. For sure. All right. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, my pleasure, Andrew. Take care. Okay. Talk soon. And now a word from our sponsor, Control and Compound. Here's how infinite banking works in under 60 seconds. You have to save your money somewhere. Well, we think the best place to save it is inside a cash value life insurance policy. You save some money in there, it grows tax-free for the rest of your life. Then an opportunity or emergency comes, comes along. Let's say a few years down the road, you can buy a business, buy a property, buy an income-producing asset. You leverage the infinite banking policy, borrow against your asset, take advantage of the opportunity. But your money still stays in the infinite banking policy. You're not borrowing your money. You're borrowing the insurance company's money. So your money's in the policy, it's in the opportunity, and it's providing a death benefit. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. You get to retirement, you have this massive cash value, life insurance, leverage that tax-free, and you don't repay those loans. You sit on the beach and you spend that money tax-free every month doesn't show up on a tax return, and you leave your family a huge tax-free death benefit. For more information, visit www.controllingcompound.com forward slash Andrew Hines.